ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to the second season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake, or murder. Go to AJCBreakdown.com for additional background, photos, video, and more on the Justin Ross Harris case. Previously on Breakdown. It's been stated to me that you would like not to testify at this time. That is correct, yes ma'am. And uh, is that, was that your opinion and what you wanted to do when it was stated to the court? Yes ma'am. Is it still your opinion? Yes ma'am. I didn't want to go in my home. It was like I knew that if I went through the door, that it would be real. And I didn't want it to be real. So I sat down on the sidewalk outside and I said, I don't want to go inside. And we finally went inside and I walked back through the living room and through the kitchen, through the hallway and back to Cooper's room. And I just got in his bed and I just cried. I finally was able to cry. How do you feel about your ex-husband? He ruined my life. He destroyed my life. I'm humiliated. I may never trust anybody again. If I never see him again after this day, that's fine. The jury in the Ross Harris murder trial may be feeling the same way, if I never see him again. But they're going to see him at least one more time on the day they pass judgment on him. Last week, of course, was a time of momentous decisions, just not for the Ross Harris jury. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and I'm still waiting to hear a court clerk say the magic words. We have a verdict. One reason, that momentous decision I mentioned. The first day of deliberations was election day, and the jurors were dismissed after just a couple of hours so they could go vote. And then there's the federal holiday. Two full days of deliberation, and then it's Veterans Day. So the six-man, six-woman jury will be back after a long weekend. The jurors have asked some interesting questions since they retired to the jury room. On the first day, they wanted the legal definition of wanton, which is in the language for one of the felony murder charges. The word means deliberate and unprovoked. But Judge Mary Staley Clark decided not to give any definition of the word to the jury. Instead, she sent a note back telling jurors they'd have to rely on their collective knowledge of the word. You can guess why they were asking but I can't guess why the judge wouldn't give them an answer. The jury also wanted to review the interview of Ross Harris by lead detective Phil Stoddard at police headquarters. Then they asked to watch the hour-long recording of Harris and his then-wife Leanna later that day. On day three, they asked 
to review the video of Harris tossing light bulbs into his car after he came back to the office from lunch. This security video is a bit grainy and shot from a camera a good distance away from Harris's SUV. So the jury asked that the large screen monitor that's been used by the prosecution and the defense be placed just a few feet away from the jury box. That way they could have the best possible view. So we got to watch the jurors watch the videos. And I must say, it was fascinating, seriously. On the light bulbs video, it was interesting to watch them watch. Most of them leaned forward in rapt attention, their eyes fixed on the screen. At one point, one juror looked back at another and nodded his head knowingly. I'm not sure what they were looking for, but they'd seen it, or not seen it, for sure. It's easy to imagine the alliances that have formed and shifted and reformed in that jury room. With that one glance from one juror to another, we got to see one of those alliances in action. It was like he said aloud, yep, there it is, just like we saw it the first time. Why did they want to watch those recordings? Did they want to see whether Harris was faking his grief? Did they want to see whether he did or did not actually cry? Did they want to see whether what he told Leanna matched up with what he'd just told Stoddard? Did they want to see whether Cooper was visible as Harris walked up to his car? Deliberations also may be taking a toll on some of them. During one break on Friday, some jurors went outside for their regular cigarette break, and one of the female jurors could be seen in tears. An older woman juror consoled her by putting an arm around her shoulders. Atlanta attorney Esther Panich was in court last week watching the jurors watch the videos. Here's her take. It was not surprising that the jurors wanted to see the videos of Ross Harris being interviewed by Detective Stoddard and then the video of Ross Harris with his wife, Leanna. There had been a lot made of the fact that Ross was not emotional at all until he saw Leanna, which is also when he found out that he would be charged with a crime. So if he was faking it and then only putting on the tears for Leanna, the jury may be able to tell that. And that would go to some type of, that he was rehearsed uh, or some level of malice, that there was an intent there to hurt Cooper. As for the other video? The third video was very interesting because it really spoke to malice, whether or not Ross could see into the car when he threw the light bulbs on the seat. So if he could, or if the jury believed that he put his head into the car or had a clear view of Cooper, then that definitely proves malice if he saw him there and walked away. If he did not, if he could not put his head in the car or did not put his head in the car, that doesn't speak to malice. They may have other facts that they like, but that fact wouldn't speak to malice. Also, Ross walked away after putting the light bulbs in the car and another person crossed paths with him. Detective Saturn initially had said that Ross had turned around to see what that person was doing, and that did not come across in the video that we saw. The jurors were engaged the entire time. The first two videos were significant in length. They were hours long, and the last video was very short. So it's difficult to say what they were necessarily looking for in the first video because some may have just seen what they needed to see and then weren't paying as much attention. The third video, because it was so short, everybody looked... Uh, was paying attention to see what it was. And it is a very difficult video to analyze because it was taken from such a distance away from where Ross was 
in his car. So it's interesting to see. It makes sense that the jurors wanted to see what happened on that day. Of course, we know exactly what all this means, right? Well, no, 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 we don't. Not by a long shot. It is extremely difficult. You have your speculative suspicions, and sometimes they last for evidence that is a central piece of the case, so you know then they are focusing on that. But what it means and what they're looking for, it is just speculation. That's Ed Garland, one of the most accomplished lawyers in Atlanta. He's represented high-profile clients like the rapper T.I. and NFL stars Ray Lewis and Ben Roethlisberger. And no one knows what thought processes are going on in the mind of the jurors, especially if the case has been lengthy, complex, lots of different pieces to it. I've had cases where the jury was given additional instructions, and, and then I thought that would be a bad result and came out a good result. Or I imagined that it was one way and it turned out to be the other. And it turned out that what the judge did or said was actually helping me, but I thought it was hurting me. So you're just speculating, you're hopeful, but no one knows. Garland also says you never know what might happen after the jury gets the case. I had a jury out for a number of days and one juror got mad at another juror and knocked him out with one blow. We had a mistrial in that case. <laughs> I had one where a juror didn't come back to court. And um, it was a juror that we wanted on the jury. And the judge called us in chambers and said, we have a problem. I said, well, what is it? The judge was going to advise us. The judge said, well, Mrs. Jones' husband called up. And he said that she wasn't coming back. And he wasn't letting her come back. And that the reason was that Mrs. Jones had been having an affair with Juror Smith and had confessed. And if she came back, he was coming down and killed Mr. Smith. Garland said he once had a jury that was out for 23 days. 23 days. Often, if that's the case, the judge will deliver the so-called dynamite charge. The judge will call a deadlocked jury back into the courtroom. Consider the problems and expense of retrying the case, the judge will say. If there is a substantial majority favoring one verdict over another, those in the minority should reconsider whether their positions are reasonable ones. In other words, let's get this over with, folks. Garland said one case he had with a dynamite charge shows just how little you know about juries. One time I just fought and fought and fought and fought against an Allen charge. I just said it's just be the most... Horrible thing you could possibly do, Judge. Judge O'Kelly. He gave his Allen charge. Fifteen minutes later, they had a not guilty verdict. I was just going to do everything possible to keep that from happening. And it probably caused the acquittal. With any luck, we won't get to the point where a dynamite charge is even considered in the Harris case. Before we began sitting and waiting, and sitting and waiting, we were treated to extremely powerful closing arguments by both the prosecution and the defense. After 21 days of testimony from 70 witnesses and more than 1,100 exhibits being admitted into evidence, it was finally time for the lawyers to give their closings. In closings, the prosecution gets to go first, then the defense. And because the prosecution has the burden of proof, 
it is allowed to add a rebuttal at the end. Each side had two hours to make their case. Closings give the lawyers a chance to remind jurors about key evidence and to try to show jurors how they should interpret that evidence. It's a lawyer's final plea to the jury. In the Harris trial, lead prosecutor Chuck Boring's closing argument was forceful and often eloquent. His delivery was sometimes a little clipped, and as he did throughout the trial, he continued to use the phrase, and things like that, in far too many sentences. Even so, he spoke to the jury in terms it could not forget or ignore. Boring and company had covered Harris with so much of his own filth that no juror could look at the defendant without seeing the slime. And Boring opened his closing the same way he started his opening statement at the beginning of the trial. I love my son and all, but we both need escapes. I love my son and all, but we both need escapes. Those words were uttered 10 minutes before this defendant with his selfish, abandoned, and malignant heart did exactly that. He drove Cooper that Home Depot treehouse parking lot and his selfish, abandoned, and malignant heart left him there to die. The law isn't often poetic, but George's malice murder statute comes close. It says, and I quote, Malice shall be implied where all the circumstances of the killing show an abandoned and malignant heart. Unquote. An abandoned and malignant heart. I'm not sure a songwriter could do better than that. You'll hear Boring using this language again later on in his closing. On that morning, June 18, 2014, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. That morning, he had strapped that child into his car seat, this wide-awake, 22-month-old beautiful child who was excited to go to school and actually said as much into a car seat that was clearly visible to anyone inside that car that was clearly visible to anyone inside that car, that was clearly visible to this defendant. He closed the door on Cooper's life and left him to suffer an unimaginable, horrible death that just five days before he watched a video about. Five days before, he sees a video on a site, a video that's entitled, How Hot Does It Get in a Parked Car? And he watches that video, video that talks about how terrible it would be, video showing that even on a day where it's breezy outside and you can see the leaves blowing in the trees, <clears throat> even on a day where you've got the windows cracked, you can kill a living being in no time at all. Five days before he closed the door on that child's life. As I've noted before, Boring faithfully pursued his trial strategy from opening statement to closing argument. That strategy? There were two versions of Ross Harris. One, the loving father, the friendly co-worker, the happy-go-lucky, gregarious friend. And then there was the Ross Harris that no one knew, the real Ross Harris, 
whose waking moments were filled with self-absorbed fantasies about sex with just about anyone who would join him. Boring returned to that theme again and again in his closing. His notion is that Harris was able to balance his two sides for a long time. But as the day of Cooper's death approached, he was losing that balance as his darker side began to assert itself more and more forcefully. Over this time and after that time and after the trip to Memorial Day, uh, to, to uh, the beach, the evidence showed the defendant's behavior was escalating. In addition to being unhappy, job, we know that in that time, the number of photos the defendant took or sent out or received regarding his other life, regarding the life he wanted to live, far outnumbered anything and any involvement with his son Cooper. He lied about what he was doing and he went to a seedy Marietta hotel and had sex for money with a prostitute. That shows you the behavior and how his priorities were set and how this was escalating leading up to June 18, 2014. We know that during this time, the defendant's behavior was escalating. <clears throat> that after that vacation, he in fact was messaging with what turned out to be a 15-year-old girl. Something we didn't find out about until after indictment. We're, we're all tired. But the thing is, when you're thinking about how tired you are of all that language and all that, as they said, filth, what we say is his other life, this other side, this other dark side, hey, those are his words. That's what's in his mind. That is the other Justin Ross Harris. Does your conscience ever kick in? And what does that defendant say? Nope. And we know for a fact that he showed that lack of conscience on June 18th, 2014. He showed exactly who he is. Did you catch that? We know exactly who he is. The lead prosecutor made sure the jury heard it all, over and over again. There was the Ross Harris who courted underage girls and at least claimed he had fallen in love with one of them. Boring even went back over the pathetic tale of the young woman who was trying to dump Harris even as he was pledging his love for her. We know in the weeks leading up to this, his breaking point was pretty low. And we know that another young girl, well, he professed love for several of these young girls, many of them not knowing about the other, thinking they're the only one, leading all these different lives. The one that he was most emotionally attached to was slipping through his fingers. We know this woman that he had professed love to, who he told that if it wasn't for Cooper, that he would leave Leanna, was gradually cutting him off. And in those days leading up to June 18th, we know that on the 17th, the day before, he tried to message her. And she didn't respond. And he said, that makes me sad. And on the morning of June 18th, a couple of hours before he killed his son, he tried one last time to message this girl he was obviously in love with, with no response. The prosecution had one other mission besides making Harris out to be an irredeemable sleaze. 
It also had to show that Harris's thermonuclear sex drive was strong enough to turn him into a killer. The prosecution made a very big deal out of that post on the Whisper app. They even made a giant red poster out of it that Boring set in front of the jury. By now, you remember what became known as the Red Whisper. I hate being married with kids. The novelty is worn off, and I have nothing to show for it. The police at first believed Harris had posted these words himself, although that was quickly disproven. And while Harris didn't actually write it, the prosecution made sure he was closely associated with it. Indeed, what he did post in reply became a linchpin of the state's case. I love my son and all, but we both need escapes. We know that people commit horrible acts against children for no good reason. Unfortunately, it's just a fact of the world we live in. But in this case, he saw this post that morning. I hate being married with kids. The novelty has worn off, and I have nothing to show for it. Now they're going to say, oh, he saw a lot of posts. But think about it. When you know the timing in this case, within that 45 minutes of all the whisper posts in all the world, what did he seek out to not only you, but respond to, to commiserate with, while he is on the way to Chick-fil-A and while he's sitting there with this son, who to everybody else he portrays, I love him, I'm a great father, things like that. Which one side of him? He probably did. But guess what? That took a backseat. Because he responded and showed us exactly what his intent was and what was in his mind. He told this person he couldn't live his other life the way he wanted. His wife complained about him going out. He wanted to go out all the time, go out with other people. And most importantly, 10 minutes before he killed Cooper, he actually said that he needed an escape. This next piece of evidence is like a lot of the evidence the prosecution offered. It was a matter of interpretation. You could look at the evidence one way and say, yeah, okay, I see that. Or you could look at it another way and say, well, that's not really even evidence. It might look bad, but it doesn't prove anything. Now, it's certainly possible, maybe even likely, that Harris saw his child in the car long before he said he did. But it's also conceivable that he didn't. Boring, however, doubles down as if he is holding incontrovertible proof. And he told us, if this child was visible in that car, that is not a failure of memory systems, flat out. This is not some forgetting. That child's visible. You're not going to forget the child. And in this case, this child was visible three different times. When he got into the car in Chick-fil-A and drove, making turns in traffic, going into the parking lot, backing up, pulling in, being in there 30 seconds with that child, getting his bag that's to his right, getting in his Chick-fil-A cup that he just had breakfast uh, with his son, the drink he got at lunch when he goes back to the car and in the evening when he got in the car and drove away. As much as they try, the defense cannot get away from the fact that has always been apparent in this case. Cooper would have been visible to anyone inside of that car. Flat out. 
number of witnesses who testified had ridden in that car. Not a one came in here and told you that Cooper was not visible from the front of that car. Not a single one from the state or from the defense. There was, you're darn sure that question would have been asked. If Cooper was visible from the front seat of that car, without all of this other stuff, the defendant is guilty of all counts. At this point, Boring makes an absurd statement. I'm not sure why he said it or what the jury thought of it, but it sure had me shaking my head. While the state doesn't have to prove motive or prove that evil lurks in the hearts of some men, that humans sometimes take advantage of the vulnerable and the innocent and people they're supposed to love, we don't have to prove that. We know it happens. In this case, we know why he chose this method. He was an expert in it by June 18th. He knew more about leaving a child in a car than any other human on the face of the earth by that day. He knew more about leaving a child in the car than any other human on the face of the earth that day? Seriously? There's an entire website devoted to tracking these kinds of tragedies. There's a meteorologist who has studied this phenomenon for years. There's a nonprofit group that devotes tremendous energy toward warning parents about it and lobbies to get better warning systems in cars to prevent it. And Harris is the world's most foremost expert? Please. Besides, deliberately locking a toddler inside a car on a hot day does not require any particular expertise. All it requires is, well, an abandoned and malignant heart. And that's assuming Harris did it on purpose. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Boring told the jury he knew what Harris had been thinking. Harris had simply thought that everyone was too stupid to catch him. Implicit in this remark is that the jury also would have been too stupid to catch Harris. This defendant thought he was going to get away with this manner of murder because he thought he was smarter than everybody else, and he didn't think anybody was going to call his bluff. This was a smart tactic on Boring's part. I have no idea whether that was in Harris's head, but by saying that it was, Boring found another way to isolate Harris to paint him as a sinister plotter who believed he was above the rules that apply to all of us inferior beings. And for sure, the jurors are not going to like a criminal who thinks he's smarter than they are. Also, by adding, he didn't think anybody was going to call his bluff. Boring implied that the forces for good, the police and the prosecutors, were in fact smart enough, righteous enough, to call Harris's bluff. Boring also made sure he revisited the question of Harris's demeanor, particularly on the night of Cooper's death. To me, it's a lot like the evidence concerning whether Harris could or could not have seen Cooper in the car. The cops and prosecutors say Harris was faking his emotions. Maybe he was, but maybe he wasn't. They don't have any proof either way. There's no weep-a-meter that analyzes the validity of grief. And these are the same cops who said Leanna Taylor was not emotional. 
and then they played an audio tape in which she was clearly emotional. Here's Boring. Motive evidence showing this person's double life and what his priority was in the days leading up to and especially on June 18, 2014. And you see his demeanor there in the interview room where he's huffing and puffing. You don't see him wiping any tears, snotting a, a rag and a shirt, anything like that. You see him doing exactly as it was described at the scene, as, as Detective Piper said, like Will Ferrell, yelling a lot, and then he's calm and looking around. And that's what we saw in that interview room. It wasn't until, and this is evidence of demeanor, until after he was arrested, after he was detained and told he was going to be arrested for these charges, did we see him get that real emotion. I'm not going to sit here and say he wasn't emotional in that room with Leanna, because he was. He was sobbing like a baby, talking about, uh, I feel bad about it. Why me? They got a metal toilet and a cot that's uncomfortable. Asking Leanna to make sure he didn't get arrested. Demeanor. Boring then returned to his primary theme. The fact that he was a good dad on some other occasions does not excuse or mitigate taking a life for your own selfish reasons. This killer's heart abandoned this child long before he died. This defendant's heart abandoned this child when he left him to die a terrible death in that car, when he came back to check the scene, check the scene at lunch, maybe even to make a discovery in front of his friends there until they pulled off too quickly. Quite possibly discovering, as we've heard from the evidence, that Cooper could have been alive in that car and abandoning him yet again and sat there malignantly while that child cooked in that car. That, ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, and this case is the epitome of an abandoned and malignant heart. Premeditation. I know a lot of people talk about premeditation. Is there premeditation? Remember this at all times. There is no premeditation at all. We don't have to prove that he woke up that morning and at 7.55 decided, you know what, I'm going to murder my child. Unfortunately, most cases like this are a crime of opportunity. When it presents itself, when your mind gets in that point, you do it. Malice can be formed in an instant, and the judge is going to tell you that. As soon as the defendant decided and formed that in his mind and said, you know what, I'm shutting the door on this child, that's malice. There's no premeditation required. Although, the evidence screams that he'd been thinking about this for quite some time. Before this trial started, few believed Ross Harris stood a chance of escaping a murder conviction. And that's still possible, don't get me wrong. But his defense team was clearly well prepared by the time they arrived in Brunswick. It was a rare occasion when they appeared to be caught off guard by some prosecution witness or key piece of evidence. When lead defense attorney Maddox Kilgore got up to make his final pitch to the jury, he also stuck to his script. He's always said that this case was a rush to judgment from the start, that police cherry-picked evidence that threw Harris into a sinister light and disregarded anything that suggested this could have been an accident. Before Ross had ever been interviewed, before any witnesses had been interviewed, before any investigation whatsoever had been done, they had got 
head of detectives had already decided the case. He'd already decided that a crime had occurred. He had already passed judgment. He'd already precluded, completely precluded the possibility that this was exactly what it was, an accident. It was Detective Stoddard's boss, who you heard from. He's wrong. He's wrong for a lot of reasons. Kilgore and the defense team wanted very much to ram Stoddard's gold detective shield right up his badge wallet. This was the message the defense wanted to have rattling around inside the brains of the jurors back in the jury room. Unfortunately, after the prosecution packed in all that deviant behavior about Harris, there may not have been a lot of room left in the jurors' brains. And I have to say that, although Stoddard had some serious issues as the lead investigator for Cobb Police, he was still the state's key witness and did pretty well on the stand. The Cobb Police made a decision right there on the scene. It was never, ever a consideration that this was an accident. And that's why you've seen and heard throughout these weeks that everything Ross said was suspicious. Everything he didn't say was suspicious. Everything he did was suspicious. Everything he didn't do was suspicious. Every way he acted, he reacted. He screamed too hard at the scene. He didn't cry in front of us. He cried in private on tape, but we couldn't measure his tears, so we don't know if it was actual tears. He cried when he was with his wife. We were secretly recording them, but that doesn't count because he was probably just faking that. If he's putting on some sort of a show for somebody, why's he doing it alone? Why's he doing it in the room after they've closed the door? Detective Stoddard's assessment of the entirety of what occurred that day was no emotion. No emotion. Not gonna, I'm not gonna reshow that 42-minute um, recording with uh, between Ross and his wife. But if you want to see it again, your deliberation, you can ask the judge. Kilgore tried to make a critical distinction. Yes, Harris did it, but he didn't mean to and an accident is not a crime. This sounds eminently reasonable, but after so many weeks of service, the jury might just be looking for something more satisfying than reason. And frankly, it's difficult to be reasonable when you're dealing with a scum-encrusted loser like Harris and an adorable little boy who died a horrible, horrible death. This is what the prosecution was counting on, and the defense just wasn't able to counteract it. Indeed, it may not have been possible. As I told you in opening, and as Ross explained from that very day, he is responsible. He is absolutely responsible. Only him, nobody else. And he has acknowledged that from day one. He is responsible but responsible is not the same thing as criminal.
It is not. The state has not disproven that this was an accident. It is their burden to do so. And there's a reason why they can't disprove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was an accident. And that's because it was. Harris is not facing one murder charge, but three. And one kind of murder is not viewed under Georgia law as more serious than another. Sure, malice murder sounds worse than felony murder. One means you intended to kill. The other can mean that someone happened to die while you were committing a felony. But the law treats them the same. Kilgore made it a point to tell the jury this. And certainly, he was trying to let jurors know that if they couldn't find Harris guilty of malice murder, a compromised verdict with a felony murder conviction could result in the same amount of punishment. Murder is murder is murder. Whether he's convicted of count one, two, or three, if he's convicted of any count, they're all the same in Georgia. And you need to know that when you're considering his fate. We spent 21 days with them charging down one track and one track alone. This entire trial has been about count one. The state's theory in this case that Ross intended to kill Cooper. Malice. That's been the state's theory from the beginning. He meant to do it. He intended to do it. That's been their case. That has been what they have tried to sell you throughout this entire trial. And I think it's become very clear that Ross treasured Cooper and had no reason, no reason, no reason to kill him. It doesn't matter what he's thinking about. It doesn't matter if he's thinking about sports or uh, uh, it doesn't matter what it is. Anything. Politics, work, sex, whatever. Why? Because nobody, you don't anticipate that you're going to forget. That's not how it works. And we got out of the car with Cooper in the back at the treehouse. He'd forgotten it. He'd already forgotten. You think Ross's ex-wife and her best friend, Angie, you think they're going to come in here and testify for Ross? If for one second they didn't mean exactly what they said, that Ross loved that child more than anything, you think they would have ever come in here for him? Listen, Ross ruined that woman's life. He humiliated her in front of the world. He took her son away. You think, you really think she's going to come in here and her best friend's going to come in here and say anything about how much Ross loved his little boy? If they didn't know that this was an accident? about that. The state repeatedly advanced the idea that Harris was leading a double life. Here, Kilgore tried to turn that idea to Harris's advantage, and he highlighted the stark dichotomy of this case. Harris killed Cooper, but it's pretty clear 
that he loved his little boy. If he was living a double life, there appeared to be a constant in both lives. And that was that he loved his little boy. You see, in, in both of these lives, the state wants to tell you about that there's double lives. In both of them, there's something that's the same. Something that's very the same in both. And that's that he loved that little boy. State wants to suggest that uh, Ross wanted to escape from Cooper so bad that he would destroy the treasure of his life. I submit to you this. To do what they're suggesting that he did, knowingly and intentionally, to do that, there's got to be some pretty serious hatred. I don't mean just dislike. I mean, there's got to be some real serious ill will or hatred toward that little boy. The kind that would permeate your life and pour out of your pores that everybody around you would see and hear and know and realize and pick up on, but not one witness has indicated anything like that. There's also this bit of evidence that could hang up any juror who believed it to be true. Harris had been planning a vacation cruise with Leanna, Cooper, and his brother's family for some time in the fall. Don't forget, the night before he left Cooper inside his SUV, Harris had Googled for information about the price of passports for children. One, he's planning a family cruise with Cooper. And two, he's clueless that Cooper's out in the car because he's forgot. The police had this information. They knew about these emails on the 17th and 18th with Heather Coyle, and they never bothered to give her a call. How do you explain that? How do you explain that a person that Ross is emailing with about Cooper on the 17th, about a cruise with Cooper on the 17th, and then he, he receives an email from at 9.35 on the 18th. How do you explain that police never even called the woman? How do you explain that? District Attorney didn't even call her until September, just a few weeks ago. You know, they managed to wrangle up this um, woman from the University of Alabama that Ross had hooked up with a year, or more than a year before Cooper died. They managed to wrangle her up, get her in here, tell you how they hooked up in a car, but they didn't even bother to call the woman he was emailing with about Cooper in the hours before Cooper's death. So I will pose this question to you all. Was this investigation and prosecution a search for the truth? Was it? Or was it a search only for what was going to fit the state's theory? Ask yourself that. There's no way, no way around the fact that in the hours before Cooper's death and the weeks before Cooper's death, Ross was planning a cruise to include Cooper. There is no way around it. 
And to find Ross guilty of murder, you basically have to just ignore it. You just have to ignore it. Like it was never even brought out. Why? Because a person planning to do what they say that Ross did, that kind of person is not planning to take their child on the cruise. Those are inconsistent. What about the prosecution's contention that Harris killed his little boy so he could be free to sleep with as many people as possible? Well, Harris already seemed to be doing just that, Kilgore told the jury. So ask yourself this. If the state's right about this cockamamie theory that he meant, intended to kill his son, what in the world does he gain? What does he gain? What has he accomplished? What is his reward? He's already doing whatever he wants to do. Kilgore also made a strong point about the cop's assertion that Leanna has remained a suspect ever since Cooper died back in June 2014. But we also heard from Detective Stoddard during the trial that Leanna has been a suspect during the entirety of this investigation. Not actively right now, but he said she's been a suspect during the entire investigation. They just, they just didn't have enough for probable cause. Well, if the theory is that Ross murdered his treasure to free himself of this marriage to Leanna, how in the world could she be involved in a conspiracy to do that? How is that possible? Leanna's going to assist Ross in murdering their little boy so that he can free himself of a marriage to her. It sounds absolutely ludicrous. But if Leanna has been a suspect for two years, that's what you would have to buy. If she's been a suspect for two years, that is the cockamamie story that you have to buy. It's absolutely ridiculous. The state has always ascribed sinister motives to the whisper conversation Harris was having with the female stranger moments before he left Cooper in the car. This is The Red Whisper, the post from the woman who said, she was tired of being married with kids. But Kilgore puts a wholly different and just as plausible spin on Harris's responses to that post. I miss having time to myself and going out with friends. Sounds exactly like something Ross would say. My wife gets upset when I want to go out with friends. That certainly sounds like something Ross would say. I love my son and all, but we both need escapes. Sounds exactly like Ross. But what he doesn't say is what the state suggests that he's saying. I love my son and all, but I'm about to murder him in the next 15 minutes. That's essentially what the state is telling you that that says. We all see exactly what this is all about. The state wants to bury him in this filth and dirt of his own making so that you'll believe he is so immoral, he is so reprehensible, that he could do exactly this. That's really what they're trying to sell you. Demeter and dirt. 
Kilgore implored the jury to write two words in response to the state's charges. And I'm going to ask you to very simply go into that room and write two words for each of those, not guilty. Because the state's burden is to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Ross is guilty. But more than that, it's also their burden to disprove, to disprove beyond a reasonable doubt that this was an accident. They have to disprove it, and they haven't done so. Two words. So Kilgore pleaded with the jury to acquit his client of the murder charges. But don't forget, Harris also faces three sex counts, one felony and two misdemeanors. They are sending nude photos of his genitals to a young girl and asking her to do the same thing in return. The other is for engaging in Randy and explicit sexual banter with the girl on the internet. Kilgore didn't outright tell jurors they could find Harris guilty of these charges, but he may as well have. He cited a passage, Reap the Whirlwind, from the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. The last three counts involved criminal attempt to commit a felony, sexual dissemination of harmful material to minors. You get back there, look through the evidence, and you decide the state's proven their case on that, you would write the word guilty. Ross Harris will reap the whirlwind. Kilgore finished his summation by playing once again the family video of Harris sitting in the bed across from Cooper. He strums his guitar for his ecstatic little boy and gets the child to strum a few bars himself. You do Go. Kilgore ended his closing by telling the jurors he had faith in them. On behalf of Ross and Brian and Carlos, we trust you. Like I said, Boring got the last word, and he made the most of it. Justice in this case is nothing more than justice for that little boy. And in this case, it's a verdict of guilty on all counts. Boring then addressed Kilgore's take on Leanna's testimony. First of all, Leanna Harris. Leanna Harris was never going to accept that her husband was capable of this. Leanna Harris stayed with this man for years. You saw how she is. She finds out her son's dead and the first thing she asks about is her husband. You have to feel some sort of, you know, she kind of got treated like a doormat for years. To say the police shouldn't have looked at her and her actions as suspicious that day, ladies and gentlemen, she admitted it from the stand. Yeah, when I watch that, absolutely. That doesn't look right. So the police should just ignore it. Absolutely not. Boring asked the jury to think twice about Harris's professed love and devotion to his little boy, using Leanna as an example. Also, he was a good dad, he loved Cooper. Well, he also, also allegedly loved Leanna. And we saw how that went and how he treated her. Boring also confronted the notion that it made no sense for Harris to be thinking about killing his son when he was planning a vacation with him. Maybe it was because Harris was on the fence, the prosecutor conceded. You know what? How would he have been Googling vacations June 9th? How would he have web searched something if he intended on killing this kid? 
hours before he did it. I'm not up here saying that he wasn't conflicted about it. Common sense would say he probably vacillated back and forth until the opportunity presented itself and he finally pulled the trigger. This man was obsessed. He could not get enough of what he had going on and he could only get it when the opportunity presented himself. Of course, was a burden that was in the way of doing exactly what he wanted to do as much as he wanted to do. What does he have to gain? Well, he doesn't have to worry about taking care of his child anymore. He doesn't have to worry about that responsibility. As he wound up, Boring became a bit emotional when telling jurors to think about the dead child. Right here, right now, let's get back to what this case is about. This case is about justice, and it's about that little boy, Cooper Harris. Today, that boy would be four years old, in pre-K, getting ready to go to kindergarten, maybe learning how to play t-ball. I guess as much as that age you learn, you have to learn how to drop the bat before you run to first rather than actually playing anything. But he's not. He's not here with us. Because that defendant took him. That defendant took his life for his own selfish, selfish, obsessed reasons. That little boy's never gonna get that chance. And those chances he would have had. We've heard a lot about excuses for this defendant, which have been turned away at every stop. But who's gonna speak for Cooper? Who speaks for Cooper? The witnesses and the officers at that scene who carried that burden of what they saw that day, who cared more about that child on June 18th than this defendant, defendant who was concerned and crying finally when he was worried about the metal toilet he's going to have to use the bathroom in and the uncomfortable cot, woe is me, the child is dead. The evidence speaks for Cooper, and it can't bring him back. But what can be done is justice, and you as a jury have the opportunity to do that justice. Next on Breakdown, the jury returns to the courthouse and resumes deliberations. Will we finally get a verdict? Ladies and gentlemen, it is the end of another work week for us, and I'm going to discharge you. But before I do, I wanted to give you uh, instructions and also uh, instruct you to have a pleasant weekend. You cannot talk to each other about the case until you come back at 8.30 uh, on Monday and resume your deliberations. You cannot speak to others about the case nor let others speak to you about the case. You are not permitted in any way to do independent um, research looking into things, electronically books, any other means, medium, mechanism, or whatever. That, as, as we said before, whatever you can think of doing, just don't do that. This courtroom is where you have received the evidence that the law permits in arriving at a verdict in this case. And that's where your knowledge needs to come from. And I hope you all have a, a wonderful Veterans Day. It's an important day for uh, those of us who have served or have had family members who have served. It's important that we remember them and their sacrifice and service for our freedom. And then enjoy your weekend. Monday, 8.30. It's all Good fine. Night. Please watch your stuff going down. Season 2 of Breakdown, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder, is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. 
Audio production by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Chris Nicholson, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Bert Roten, Ross Cavett, Chris Nicholson, and Buddy Hall. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.